Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, meaning and the American Revolution. Hey, Ken, shouldn't that be the meaning of the American Revolution? You're not saying we're going to talk about something as boring as the meanings of words in the face of something so glorious as the American Revolution. Well, we're going to talk about both the words and the events. We're going to talk about the key documents of the American Revolution and the formation of the United States. There's the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. They're, of course, written in words, and their meanings are taken to provide the essence to lots of people of what America is all about and to be, in some sense, binding on all of us. Well, you're certainly right about that. I mean, you might wonder what a bunch of dead people a couple hundred years ago uh, have to say to us. But, in fact, uh, their words are appealed to by the Supreme Court justices in their opinions, by politicians in their campaigns, and pundits in their commentaries. So it's worth asking, it's highly worth asking, what do these words mean? How do we know what they mean, and what do we mean... What do we mean, the pundits, the politicians, uh, and all those folks you mentioned, and also us ordinary citizens, what do we mean in asking what they mean or meant? What you're telling us is we are going to talk about the boring thing. But what about the interesting thing, the the meaning of America? Well, you can't just talk about the meanings of words. You have to consider what the people who wrote them meant, what they were up to, their intentions, their aspirations, the hopes and dreams of the founding fathers and the people they rallied to the barricades. Okay, I think I get it. Now, let's go back to the boring thing. It's starting to get interesting to me. I mean, I see two kinds of problems. Tell me, what are your problems? (laughs) Well, the first is is what I'll call a problem of myths and missing words. I bet you can figure out what that is. Yeah, I I, I think I got your drift here because we constantly hear... For example, that the United States is a Christian nation. But the official founding documents, the Constitution, for example, doesn't even mention, doesn't even contain the word God or Christ or Christian. The word religion occurs, but it occurs only once in the First Amendment, saying there isn't going to be an official religion. Of course, in the Declaration of Independence, the words God and the Creator do occur. Yeah, yeah, but in a pretty weird kind of way, if you think about it. The word God appears in the phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God. The endower of our rights isn't called God, but their creator. It doesn't sound to me like it's the God of the Old Testament or even the New Testament that's being appealed to, but really the God of the Enlightenment, which was actually reason. I mean, you know, good point. And that connects our two questions, right? What did the Founding Fathers mean, and what did they intend? Was it just so obvious to them that the U.S. was a Christian nation that it didn't need to be mentioned? Or were there careful words in the Declaration and the kind of absence of words in the Constitution, a way of steering between the desires of atheists, humanist agnostics, deists, Puritans, Anglicans, and Catholics. So that's, that's the first problem. What, what, what's the second problem you, you, you have? Well, I actually think, you know, and, and I'm sure you agree as a philosopher of language, that it's a little harder to figure out what these documents means than, than people sometimes think. Well, our, our, the Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia doesn't think so. He's famous for emphasizing that we need to look at the original meanings and the text of the Constitution and other laws to interpret them. But I guess you're saying that it's not so obvious or simple as it seems. It's not like you can just read the words and they their meanings just pop out to you. But but give me an example. Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of a, a agree with Scalia. It sounds, sounds like you should look at the meanings the words had when they were 
written, and it's pretty easy to figure out what those words mean. Take the Eighth Amendment, for example. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Now, you can look up all those words in Webster's 1828 Dictionary of the American English, which, which was started, I mean, he started working on it just soon after these documents were written, and you can go back to Dr. Johnson's Dictionary of 1755 to double-check. And, and these are pretty straightforward words. So that part is fairly but easy. we're philosophers, John. And as philosophers, I mean, take the phrase uh, cruel and unusual. I mean, that's a funny phrase and that, enough to make any philosopher suspicious. Does that mean punishments aren't allowed if they're both cruel and unusual? Or there's a way of reading it that they're not allowed if they're either cruel or unusual. This is the sort of thing that a, a dictionary really can't tell you because the words can be used either way and they are used either way. Yeah, they say the devil's in the details, but as philosophers of language, we believe the devil's in the phrase. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, let's shift to a different answer. What were the framers worried about with the word cruel? I mean, once being disallowed is is cruel actions. Uh, but you can't get a dictionary to tell you what a cruel action is. They'll tell you what a cruel person is. What were they worried about? The sorts of torture devices used in Spain and France? The abuses of Charles II? Were they just repeating ideas from the Glorious Revolution? Did they have something specific in mind? Or was cruel and unusual just a sort of code phrase or idiom they picked up? Well, you know, I think both of our issues, both the meaning of the Constitution and the meanings embodied in the Constitution, are, are really fascinating. And, and as usual, we have an expert to help our discussion along. And that would be Jack Raycove. Jack is the author of the annotated U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence, the relevance of which is pretty obvious. He's uh, recently the author of Revolutionaries, A New History of the Invention of America, and a little while ago of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book Original Meanings, which is right on our topic. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Angela Kildolf, talks to some folks who have firm opinions about the meaning of the American Revolution. She files this report. TV personality Glenn Beck recently focused a series of shows on America's founding fathers. You're going to learn more in an hour than you probably learned about American history whole time in school. As he writes on two old-fashioned chalkboards, Beck says Americans want to know who the founders really were. And setting the record straight means these men are an example for us today. If you ever get frustrated or down in your life, if you ever think, I don't know, we're not going to make it, the tea parties... You just read about George Washington. George Washington lost every single battle he fought for over a year. During the opening stages of the war, loser, loser. That loser is the man in the powdered wig on the dollar bill. You know, the father of our country. And the Tea Party, of course, isn't the one in Boston in 1773. It's the movement gaining traction across the U.S. today. In Northern California, some of the Tri-City Tea Party patriots talked about Glenn Beck's take on revolutionary history. I thought it was excellent. He was giving us education that we, I know for myself, haven't had since school. Chuck Castagnolo. The Constitution, in my opinion, is a concrete document. It is not a living, breathing document, as some of our representatives seem to believe. Like Chuck said, I think it is a concrete document. And it's not just this administration, but others previous. Chris Pereja wasn't politically active before he joined the Tea Party, unless yelling at the television counts. Now he's running as a write-in candidate in California's 13th Congressional District. Pereja is careful to define the movement's goals. It's about regaining control of out-of-control spending. It's about a return to constitutional rule of government. And it's about free market systems and the ability for people to actually create the life that they want to create. <laughs> 
That's the message of the National Tea Party Federation. But how you get there is a matter of dispute within the movement. People fight about whether healthcare is good or bad in its current form. They fight about how much government is too much. Some like Social Security, some don't. Some like Medicare, some don't. And politicians are paying attention. The first Tea Party caucus met in the House this summer, and more than 50 representatives joined. Yet Pereja says the movement faces many misconceptions. It's been called a racist movement. It's been called a bunch of uh, three-cornered hat-wearing, paranoid, uh, old, rich, white guys. And it's been called an arm of the Republican Party, etc. But what you'll find is it's more like a family picnic with an educational component. Marla Castagnolo agrees. You know, it's not um, radicals, it's not crazy people, it's just people like you and me. I was a homemaker and a mother. and. You know, all of a sudden now I'm a person into politics. She founded the Tri-City Tea Party Patriots after realizing how many people in her area shared her concerns. Now there are more than 60 members. I think what we're finding is that the citizenry is committed and they're waking up in larger and larger numbers and that hopefully we can just get the accountability back to where it needs to be and the way that the, the country was founded as designed by the Founding Fathers. When I get frustrated about what's taking place today, I look back to the American Revolution and I think those people fought. You know, it, didn't, it wasn't just something that happened easily for them. They had to fight for it. We have to fight for it, too. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Angela Kilduff. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.